Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All righty, verse 10 says this, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him amongst the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. So we talked about this last week. Um, They're looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And as they're looking, it's causing muttering because now they're talking about him. Some say, oh, he's a good man. And others say, no, he is leading people astray or he is, he's conning, he's deceiving. Which one of those are wrong? Both. He is not a good man. A good, he's God. A good man doesn't claim to be God. And he is not a deceiver because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Matter of fact, they never could find any fault in him or in his doctrine. And at the end of the day, he was declared innocent but still put to death. And so both of those are wrong. And Jesus comes up in the middle of this feast and he begins to teach. We talked last week, oh, I would love to have been there. I cannot wait for that. I I actually could, some people think, I could spend eternity just sitting and listening and learning. I cannot imagine um, hearing from his lips like that. It, It would be amazing. Verse 15 says, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. They're like, wait a minute. How does this guy know so much stuff without formal training? Uh, Jewish men, were it's not saying he's completely uneducated. Jewish men were educated. They were educated in the Torah. They memorized. But what they're saying is he did not go beyond the normal education. He did not study under one of them in one of their schools. He did not go to one of the yeshivas, the schools of further learning. And so they're like, wait a minute. He hasn't studied the Talmud. He hasn't studied the Torah or the wisdom writings under us. So how does he know so much without us teaching it to them, right, and to him? And so in some ways, they feel like they have, they own the scripture because the authority needs to be passed down. Every teacher taught from the authority of someone. And we're gonna look at that in a minute. But uh, But Jesus taught from whose authority? His father's, right? And so, listen, it is important to protect doctrine. It is, absolutely, we need to have good doctrine. But what I find sometimes is those who are very stellar and they protect doctrine, sometimes they can get a little bit pharisaical where all of a sudden they're protecting the doctrine, but yet they're coming out in a way that is very harsh and not loving. And so almost like they own the scriptures. And, and that's kind of hard too. I see it in our world today um, that you're protecting doctrine, but at the same time you're shaming a person or uh, not, not saying it with a loving heart. And so they have this ownership over it. How in the world does he know so much if we did not teach him this? And so the issue is though, they can't reject his doctrine. Have they ever found fault in his doctrine? No. So they can't find fault in his doctrine, so they go after his credentials, or in other words, kind of his character, because to them, doctrine and character are synonymous, and so they go after him. And they said, uh, and and trust me, if they could have gone after his doctrine, they would. Um, So they went after his credentials. I think it's interesting, too, in Acts 4, we see the impact of being with Jesus. Let's look at that, Acts 4. We're going to be going to a lot of places in Scripture today, so have your Bible ready. 
Remember sword drills where we used to have to remember where, yeah. Acts 4.13. It's talking about, well, you'll see. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is after Jesus, right, has ascended to the Father and the disciples are building the church and they're in Acts and they're preaching and they're, they're astonished. These religious leaders are astonished by Peter and John and they're like, they're ordinary, uneducated men, but they were astonished at their teaching, but then they remembered what? They had been with Jesus. And so I'm telling you that um, I would rather hear someone who has spent a lot of time with Jesus than someone who is highly educated. For example, you have these religious leaders who absolutely know every jot and tittle of the law. They know everything about it. They can quote it to you like you've never seen, but they're missing the living word sitting right in front of them. Let's not do that. Let's not study to gain knowledge. Right? That's not, I mean, we do gain knowledge, but we gain knowledge to be applied, transformation, right? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And so we don't just read the Bible because it's a box we check of something Christians do. We read the Bible to gain knowledge, but by reading the Bible, we are changed. And basically, that's what he is going to say. He's going to say that next. Um, but I think the disciples got the best three education any seminary can offer. I don't know about you. What do you think? Matthew eleven twenty five. Let's read that. It says at that time Jesus declared, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children." We hear all the time that God uses the foolish, right? The simple, the child, the humble. That's, that's who he uses. And um, keep a spot there because we're coming back to that verse. Anytime back in the day you would listen to a rabbi, you would be able to determine who their discipler was immediately because they had to do four things. They had to, number one, memorize his words. So whoever their discipler or their teacher was, they had to memorize his words. They had to adopt his interpretation of the scripture. They had to imitate his ministry model, and then they had to multiply it. And so you could literally tell pretty quick by listening to a teacher who their teacher was, okay? Which brings us back to this whole idea that they marveled because to listen to them was like listening to who? Jesus. The whole idea of a yoke, so we're going to look at that verse, Matthew 23, verse 4. Sorry about it. Matthew 11, listen to verse 28. I told you we were coming back to that. It says, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right? The idea of a yoke is taking the yoke of a rabbi reflected a disciple's willing submission to that rabbi. Now look at Matthew 23, 4. He is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying about them, they or you, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And the next story in the chapter ahead, he's going to do some stuff with his finger in the dirt that's going to relieve burden, right? And so here you have this whole idea of the fact that Jesus uses the ordinary. He has received this message from the Father. He's going to pass it on to his disciples. But the difference is Jesus is trying to make them understand my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? He took the burden onto himself. These Pharisees and scribes, what are they doing? They take the burden of the law and they place it on the people. And so they, here's the difference. I love this quote. It's from a book called A Gentle Answer that I've been reading. I think it's amazing. The, scan, the scandal around Jesus is a reality that distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. 
as well as from all forms of human philosophy and politics. Here's the kicker. Jesus and Christianity do not discriminate between good people and bad people. Instead, Jesus and Christianity discriminate between humble people and proud people. The problem with these Pharisees is they think they're keeping the law. They have added so many guardrails to the law that they literally think they're doing it, that they're good. And the problem is he is trying to explain to them, no, you're not. They think, no, the law saves us. We know the law. We are doing the law. And he is constantly telling them, no, it doesn't. Matter of fact, you think you know the law, but the living word is looking right at your face and you're missing him. They don't get it. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 25, 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. So he takes them back now to the issue of doctrine. And he says, this doctrine is not mine. It is my father. So matter of fact, every scribe that ever taught or our religious leader that taught, they always taught from authorities. The difference is, is these people say Jesus teaches as if he has authority. The authority he has is his father's. He's like, this doctrine is from my father. Then he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The word will prove itself number one. But here's the key. Here's the question. Do you want to do God's will? That's the question. Remember Saul, the Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, who thought he knew the law better than anyone there and probably did, and he was out killing Christians because he thought it was what? The right thing to do until the Lord knocked him off his horse and then what did he say? Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you see a willingness? All of a sudden, he was willing before he even knew. I love it. Said, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, 95% of knowing the will of God is being willing to do it before you know what it is. Let me read that one more time. 95% of knowing the will of God is being willing to do it before you know what it is. It seems that most people want to know what it is, and then they decide if they want to do it. That's not humility. That's not believing who he is and knowing what he is. Come to me. Learn from me. I am gentle. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. If you know who he is, we should have a humble willingness to do his will because what do we know about his will? It's good, right? It's good. Remember the point of chapter five when Jesus is claiming to be equal with God? Do you remember all that? All the witnesses, do you remember that chapter? He's like, well, I've given witness, but my witness don't count, okay? But John the Baptist gave witness and you kind of basked in his light for a while, but then not. But there's another witness that you do not know, my father. And how does he witness? He witnesses through the miracles and through scripture. I mean, the fact is, it was indisputable of who, who Jesus was, but they wouldn't believe it because why? They couldn't see it because they were unwilling. There has to be a willingness, a humility to bow the knee and see. Because if we are completely unwilling, if we are so proud, we will not see. And he's like, those who are willing, they'll see. They'll see that what I am saying is true. Was it impossible? No, was it impossible for them? Nicodemus saw. There was a willingness in him because his willingness allowed him to see and realize that no man can do the works that Jesus did and not be from God. And he was one who was changed. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? This makes me laugh. 
They must have lost their mind. Has not Moses given you the law? Let n- yet none of you keeps the law. They would be like, what? Why do you seek to kill me? What's number six in the law? Thou shalt not murder, right? An innocent man. And, and they're like, what? And then the crowd answers, look at this. The crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In other words, you've lost your mind. What are you talking about people trying to kill you? Okay, you need to understand there are two crowds here. There, there are some different audiences here. We have the religious leaders and we have the crowds, but the crowds are broken up, think about it, in two kind of groups of people. You have the local Jews who live in that area, and then you have all the people who are taking the pilgrimage into the Feast of Tabernacle from all over. Those people are less aware of the tension that has gone on over Jesus of Nazareth during the festival. So they're like, what on earth is he? Who's trying to kill him? Right? Because we're going to find out in a second, another group is going to kind of say the opposite. They're like, you're crazy. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but your forefathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. So this crowd's like, who the heck's trying to kill him? He's crazy. He's got a demon, but he just keeps talking to the people he's talking to. And he says, I did one work and you all marveled at it. What work is he talking about? No, but that's a really good guess. It's not feeding the 5,000. Think about this situation. He's talking about healing on the Sabbath. He's in Jerusalem for that next feast. So what work do you think? The healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. So John chapter, man, I'm losing my voice. John chapter five, verse 18 says, remember that after that, the Pharisees began seeking to kill him. Why? Because they healed a man on the Sabbath. You remember the whole scene? Pick up your bed and walk. And he picks up his bed and walk. He's probably skipping. And then all of a sudden, the leaders show up and go, what you doing carrying that bed? Right? And we had the whole lesson about how they're sitting there straining gnats and swallowing camels. And from that moment on, they were really focusing on or seeking to kill him. And his point is this. Oh, oh yeah? You, <laughs> let's talk about the judgments you make, okay? The Talmud says, basically, uh, that the rabbis counted 248 parts to a man's body. Okay. In the, who sat and did that? In the Talmud, it states, if circumcision, which attaches to only one of the 248 members of the human body, suspends the Sabbath, how much more shall the saving of the whole body suspend the Sabbath? In other words, they were so stuck to the law of Moses. They made judgments all the time. They were so stuck to the law of Moses, the fact that circumcision was the very thing that signified that they were the covenant people of God. It was that important that if a boy, if the eighth day of that baby arrived on the Sabbath, then they trumped Sabbath with circumcision. And he's saying, so you're only, you're going to talk about one part of the body being set apart? No, he's like, if one body, part of the body can do it, then how in the world are you upset that I healed the entire body on the Sabbath? You people, right? He's like, quit making judgments by what you see. Make right judgments. He's trying to be logical with them. You are so stuck on Moses and the law and Moses and the law and Moses and the law. You know the law, but the fact is you don't keep it. You are conspiring right now to kill an innocent man. And even your own practices, you, you pick what is the most important, and it is life. And so here you are, you know, making, making all this to do about it. Jesus is saying, I purified the whole body. 
In verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can't it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and he you do not know. For I know him, for I came from him and he sent me. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So doesn't verse 25 seem to conflict with the other ones who said, what are you talking about? He's lost his mind. He's crazy. Who's trying to kill him? But what does it say in verse 25? Some of the people of Jerusalem, they now show up and they're like, what's going on? What's going on here in this temple? Isn't this the man that they are determined to kill? And yet he's speaking openly and they're not doing anything about it. If they are seeking to kill them, why kill him? Why aren't they arresting him now? Maybe they actually know he is the Christ. And he looks at them and he says, you know me and you know where I come from. <clears throat> you can read that in two different ways. I wonder if it means like, really? Yeah, you really know me, all right. You know where I come. Like, could it be sarcastic? Eh, probably not. But what he's saying is, I can read things like that. But what he is saying is, okay, you do know me and you know where I come from. I mean, think about this. They know exactly where he comes from because the scribes and the leaders in Jerusalem have all the documentation to know it. Okay, here's the problem. They have a misunderstanding about the Messiah based on misunderstanding of Old Testament prophecy. They have gotten in their minds that when the Messiah comes, that it is going to be like a bam, like he's just gonna show up out of nowhere willy-nilly and they're not gonna know where he came from. You wanna know where they got that idea? Well, let me tell you. Malachi 3.1. And there are some other places they've misunderstood, but Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They had in their mind that he would just bam, show up, and they wouldn't know where he was from. But the fact is, that's not exactly true. Because if they had done the research, right, they would have known. Where did Jesus come from? Where was he born? Bethlehem, right? The whole reason he went there was because of a what? Why was he born there? Because Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem because they were from the city of David and there was a census that would have been taken to keep up with the genealogical records of the Jewish people and who would keep those records. The leadership, right, that would be in the temple in Jerusalem. And if they had continued to do the research because we know that other people did, in Matthew chapter two, do you remember when the wise man came? and they're looking for the king of the Jews, what did Herod do? He's like, uh, excuse me, but okay, well, have a nice time and make sure you report back to me when you find him. Where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And the scribes go back and they study the scripture and they come back by saying Micah 5.2. Turn to Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them unto this time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the, it goes on. And so where did they come up with? Where did the scribes come back and tell that Herod that the Messiah was to be born? Bethlehem, 
all right? There is even, but their problem is, how can this be? How can someone from Galilee, forgetting, not knowing he's born from Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth, but even then, look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy saying that the light will come forth from where? Galilee. And so my point is, and then we know in Isaiah, we have the whole uh, prophecy of the virgin birth. But the fact is, if they had done their research that was there, they would have found out what? He was from the family of David. He was born in Bethlehem. And that, yes, he came out of Galilee. The people in darkness have seen a great light. Not only that, should they have had that information if they have looked, but they also know where he's from because what? Like in a spiritual sense that he comes from God because he could not do the things that he is doing, Nicodemus said, unless he was from God. And so he says, you know, he says, but we know where the man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who has sent me is true and him you do not know. I told you before that rabbis came under the authority of the person who taught. And he is saying, I have, I'm not just teaching on my own willy-nilly. I have come with an authority. The authority is my father. And it says, very important. I'm going to stop here for a second. I want to review some stuff because he literally looks in their faces and he says, and you don't know him. Do you know how offensive that was to them? Do I need to read it to you again? It says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. What? Jesus is saying, you don't know the father. You don't know God. So let me ask you a question. Is it possible to know God without knowing Jesus? I wanna review with you a little bit. Okay, John 5, 23 is the first verse I'm gonna read. I think this is very valuable in our day. And if I were you, I would, I mean, yes, go with me to read these, but jot these verses down so that you have them in a grouping, okay? 523 <clears throat> says this. I'll read 22 just to set it up. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's pretty clear. John 5, 42. I'm reviewing some of the statements we've heard. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He says, <clears throat> you do not have the love of the Father in you because I came in his name and you did not receive me. That's pretty clear. 6.45. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me. Who's me? Jesus. Everyone who has learned, who has heard and learned from the Father does what? Comes to me. Verse 8, I mean, chapter 8, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. Last one, 842. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Is it possible to know God, to truly worship God, and to deny Jesus? No, it's not. It's not possible. Every other religion in the world that claims to worship God, to follow God, to be taught of God, Jesus is bluntly saying, all those truly that hear from and are taught by God will come to who? Me. I'm telling you, it's not that we're being brats. The two things cannot coexist. Works and grace cannot coexist together. It cannot. And so, you know, some of the questions like my kids will bring up, like, mom, but what if people don't fully know? Okay, God is a good judge. He is going to judge people according to the faith that has been given them. But that is not the majority of the issue today, okay? The issue today is that in our pride, just like from the very beginning, we want to determine truth. We want to control That's what we want to do. We want power. We want autonomy. And the fact is, to begin to receive grace, it begins not with pride, but with what? Humility. A willingness. And we're going to see that even more. It's it's an understanding that we thirst. And so the question is, no, you cannot know God and serve God and ignore Jesus. You can't. They are one. The love of God is not in you because I came to you from my father and you did not receive me. These are Jesus's own words. So I'm telling you, he, he, he's not mealy mouth, okay? He speaks the truth. And when the truth is spoken and the light comes down and shines, the judgment will be in you. You will either turn towards the light or you will turn away. That is the judgment. Remember at the beginning, it says, I didn't come in to condemn the world because the world is already in condemnation. I came to save the world. And so I wanted to stop there just for a second because you need to understand what he is saying. The fact is, because you will not receive me and believe who I am, you do not know God. You do not know the Father. You You know the words on this page but the living God is looking at you and you're missing him. He also says to them, hold on, I gotta find it where I am. I know him for I came from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but had no one, no one had laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? He said, listen, My time has not yet come. They wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hand on him. Why? Because they do not have the power to do so. John 10, 18 says, no one takes it, meaning his life for me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to raise it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He's like, my time has not yet come. The thing that is really making them angry is that they have no power over him. They have no control over him. And what's really crazy is in the middle of this dispute, what is still happening? What's the last verse I just read? And yet, many people believed in him. Even in the midst of this whole discourse thing, There are people who are hearing and learning from the Father because they're believing the Son. (coughs) Even in the middle of this debate, people are giving their lives to Jesus because they can see logically because they're willing. Seriously, who in the world can show up and do more than what we have already seen? Trust me, God will draw men unto himself. He will. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot go. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot go? The Pharisees start to react to the crowd. Why? They're losing control. They become reactionary. When you want to control and you realize you're losing control, and they start hearing all of this muttering, and they're beginning to lose power over this crowd. Why? Because that is, that's who they're uh, dominating, right? That is their audience. And they then are like, uh-uh. And so they react to it, and they send people to arrest. Now, we're not told till verse 47 what is actually the result of sending those men. But what, what we do know is that he says, I'm in charge here. Okay, let me, let me make you understand something. I will choose where I go, I will choose when I go, and I will choose who gets to follow. And he says it, and nothing you can do will stop it. They don't understand him at all. Where could he possibly go that we could not follow? Is he going to the dispersion? Do you know what that means? Shake your head at me. No? So in, um, I know, I feel like I'm in a classroom. I'm like, respond. It's good. I know I'm up on stage, but remember the days we were just in a classroom? I mean, talk to me, people. I don't know what happens to y'all when someone gets up on stage. You think, oh, she's important. No. No, not at all. Um, The dispersion. So you remember when I taught you about uh, the United Kingdom, the divided kingdom, maybe back in the day? So under uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, right? the nation was united. And then, uh, did I just say Saul? Yeah. And then after Solomon, we had a divided kingdom. We had Israel and Judah. Uh, That's when people started having world empires and taking over the world. And so you have the Assyrians who come in and they basically pound Israel. They don't get to Judah, but they pound Israel and they scatter them. It's called the lost tribes of Israel, and they scatter them to all the other nations. This is the people they're talking about. It's these Jewish people that have been scattered into all parts of the nation, and they basically assimilated into those parts of the nation. So they're saying, is he leaving Israel to go teach the Greeks? I mean, is he? And if that's the case, he's for sure not our Messiah, okay? But they can't understand. I mean, where in the world could he go that we can't go? Where's he going? He's going to go back to the Father, right? And he's literally telling them, and you can't go where I go. You can't go there. Why? Because it is not an issue of good people and bad people. It is an issue of what? Humility and pride. And in order to go where I'm going, you first, we're going to find out, need to recognize that you are thirsty and drink. And so, yes, you cannot go where I go. I just thought of something. I'm going to see if I can find a verse. Oh, that is not it. So hopefully it comes back to me. I read something which I think is hilarious. Have you ever heard of this self-serving bias? It basically says this. Let me see if I can find it on my phone. It says, the vast majority of us have a general sense of being smarter, funnier, or better looking than your run-of-the-mill average person. (laughs) But how is this possible? You can't all be average, right? Self-serving bias is the tendency to perceive ourselves favorably. Um, It says, this happens when we attribute our success to internal qualities, I did well because I'm smart or I won because I worked really hard, while we tend to attribute our failures to external events or bad luck. I didn't do well because that professor's unfair or I got fired because my boss is a jerk, okay? So we tend to see ourselves favorably. Now, I'm not talking about deep, dark depression or all that. I'm just saying when asked, research shows, we tend to see ourselves favorably. Uh, I thought this was kind of funny. I looked it up even more, and it says that that they did this in a marriage experiment. It says they found that married people usually gave themselves more credit for such activities as cleaning the house and caring for the children than their spouses were willing to credit them for. Every night, 
My wife and I pitch our laundry at the bedroom clothes hamper. In the morning, one of us puts it in. Recently, she suggested that I take more responsibility with this. Thinking that I already did so 75% of the time, I asked her how often she thought she picked up the clothes. Oh, she replied, about 75% of the time. (laughs) The college board recently invited a million high school seniors taking its aptitude test to indicate how you feel you compare with other people your own age in certain areas of ability. Judging from the students' responses, it appears that America's high school seniors are not plagued with inferiority feelings. 60% reported themselves as better than average in athletic ability, only 6% at below average. In leadership ability, 70% rated themselves as above average, 2% as below. Um, In ability to get along with others, 0% of the 829,000 students who responded rated themselves below average in the ability to get along with others. Uh, Have y'all been in the classroom lately? 60% rated themselves in the top 10, and 25% saw themselves among the top one. (laughs) To paraphrase Elizabeth Barnett Browning, the question seems to be, "How how do I love me? Let me count the ways. I thought, that is so interesting. And so, in other words, these leaders, these, uh, these Pharisees, are doing what we tend to do, and I believe they are a little self They tend to be thinking more highly of themselves than they should. And that is not how you enter the kingdom. How did God, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You won't even see it. You will not see it. It's actually as impossible for you, the leader of this group, it is actually as impossible for you as jumping back in your mother's womb. You have no power over your physical birth, Nicodemus. You did nothing to cause that. You weren't even here. And you are able to do nothing to cause your spiritual one. Nothing. Except bow the knee and realize your need, that you are spiritually dead. You must be born again. You can't, there is no one good, no, not one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I'm running out of time. I'm going to set the scene for this, because this is good stuff right here. Do you remember the scene of what's going on? The feast of? of the tabernacles, right? Or the Feast of Booths. What's going on? They're camping. They're living outside in these booths and they are remembering the wilderness wanderings. They are remembering a God who heard their cries, kept his promise, and through Moses and the power of his mighty right hand with 10 plagues freed his people from the bondage of slavery. And because of the sacrifice of the lamb, they were able to leave Egypt. And these 2 million people looked in their rearview mirror. And I'm telling you what, it looked like the world power, like an atomic bomb went off and they were free. And he led them through Moses, but he led them by the pillar of fire by day, night and the cloud, did I do that right? The fire by night and the cloud by day, right? And he provided, he provided manna in the wilderness and he provided water from the rock. So they're celebrating all these things. That's what their festivals are for, to remember what God has done for them, that he is a promise keeping God. So we talked about last time that they, the entire um, tab, uh, temple is all lit up Um, and that that light is just literally coming in every courtyard, that this was the most joyous feast of all, the celebration of God's provision for them. They celebrated the harvest. They waved branches and they held fruit and they they worshiped God. But there was this water libation. Do you remember that? What would they do? 
They would take the golden vessels and they would travel from the temple all the way down to the Gion Spring to the pool of Siloam and they would fill it up and there would be, I mean, it's like a parade, all right? There was singing and dancing and the playing of musical instruments as they came through the road and they would sing from Psalm 118 and it was exciting. And, and literally the Talmud says, if you've never experienced this, you've never experienced joy. And on the last day, they did the water libation. Some will suggest that they didn't pour the water the last day. Others will say, no, this is how they end it. But they bring it up and they, what they do is they walk around the altar seven times. What does that remind you of? Jericho, what was the point of Jericho? Was Jericho was the end of the wanderings, do you remember? So they came in, once they came in, the first thing they had to do was conquer Jericho because the city of Jericho sat in one of the only passages from the way of the sea and the king's highway. So it was one of the only passages into the land and Jericho sat right there. And so to defeat Jericho, to go in and take their promised land, they had to walk around it seven times. And so it's bringing an end to the wandering. So they walk around and they walk around. It's the end of the festival and they're pouring out the water. And at the end of this, the high priest stands up and there's a great hush and they would read um, Isaiah 12, three. Let me read it to you, just so you know. Boy, you will draw water from the well of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people proclaim that his name is exalted. I mean, this was quite the time. So he stands up, there's a hush, they get ready to hear the priest, and Jesus stands up in the middle of that scene, and with a loud voice, he says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He stands up then. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. All of these feasts, they have been remembering who their God is, that he's a promise-keeping God, and that he always provides what he says. In Passover, they remembered the manna, the supernatural food, and he said what? I am the bread of life. How is it gonna happen? Through sacrifice. It will happen through my flesh. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is salvation. I am your sacrifice. I am what brings life. Your forefathers, they ate manna in the desert and they died. That's not what I'm talking about. I am the true bread from heaven. If you eat of me, you will be made alive in the spirit. You will have eternal life. And here he is reminding them, or he will, I am the light of the world, he will say. But in the middle of this whole water libation, the water from the rock, why in the world did Moses get in so much trouble for striking the rock twice? Because the rock is Jesus. He is the rock of our salvation. He was struck once. The next time you ask. And so here we have this whole symbolism of he is saying, listen, providing I am the living water. I will be struck and from me will come living water that will well up inside of you and become rivers. And when we come back, we're gonna look at the symbolism of that because not only the living water does not bubble up in us just to keep, it flows from us. And we're gonna see that it flows from us to bring healing and refreshment to others. Listen, my relationship with Jesus is meant to be communal, not personal. It's intimate, but it is communal. And so we're going to see what that looks like. But he stands up. I cannot imagine what that was like. And it was in a loud enough voice that means right under a scream. And we know that Jesus did not normally have that tone. But he stands up and proclaims, I am the living water. Anyone, anyone, anyone. I don't care. Male, female. I don't care. Uh, what ethnic group, I don't care your, your monetary situation or your important, anyone who what? 
who thirsts. If you're prideful, you don't know you're thirsty. You just sit there in your pride and just about die from thirst. But anyone who recognizes they're thirsty, he goes, come and drink. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I am the living water. Drink it, apply it, take it in. And when you do, you will be made alive. And that living water, when it's released, will bubble up in you and become streams of living water for the community. It is a beautiful picture. All right, let's pray. Next week, we'll get back. That, that is a great section. Don't miss. Thank you, Lord, um, for your teaching. Thank you, God, that it's not about good people or bad people. There is no one good, no, not one. That's the fact. We sin because we're sinners by nature. We are dead spiritually. But God, in your great love, you came down and put on flesh so that you could be the bread of life. You could be the perfect Passover sacrifice. You could be for us living water. So God, I pray that if there is anyone here that has not understood, you can't be good enough. But God loves you. And he who had no sin became sin for you and died on a cross, paid our debt, rose to the right hand of the Father to be glorified. And he offers you life. Do you thirst? If you thirst, come to me and drink. And we will be made alive. And God, I pray that I, because Lord, I ha, I, I, I've drank. I have the living water bubbling up inside of me. But Lord, let me continue to go to that well and drink and drink and realize that that living water, the spirit of God is to pour out of me to others. So Lord, keep us until we return next week to continue saying these beautiful words. And God, may we be people who understand true doctrine and give it in a way that is so loving and makes people um, want to hear. This is good news, good news. The fact that you paid our debt. So Lord, we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.